Hope that y'all are doing well. Um, if you're new here, my name is John Chambers. I'm the pastor here. A lot of people call me Fud. I know it's weird. Like, John, everybody that's here is like, who's John? Um, my parents call me John, and that, that's usually it. So um, by now, it's a long story, which I don't have a lot of time for, because we're going to be looking at the book of Matthew, which is much more important. So um, I'm going to uh, be preaching from the book of Matthew today. We've been going through Matthew for... Uh, about a year and a half or so, and we are in chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew 24, 15. 24, 15 is where we're going to be. And we are going to start right there um, and go all the way through verse 28. So if you would stand with me, I'm going to read this out loud. And we stand uh, whenever we read just in honor of the word. And then we'll jump into Matthew 24, 15. Uh, we'll pray and then jump into 24. Let's pray. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go, not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will, be such great, there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world now, until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for... False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Um, for as lightning comes from the east and shines as far to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray together. Lord, we are, I am, um, in desperate need for your presence to come this morning. As we look at what is certainly a difficult text to just on its surface understand, when we're talking about end times, when we're talking about things that are going to be happening in, in the future, um, and as we just look at that, it's difficult to understand. But God, our goal is not to understand, um, merely understand, just difficult verses but father to see them and understand them and know them so that we can go through them and drive through them to see christ to know christ to be more affectionate to christ to be more enamored by who he is what he's done for us and to live differently in light of that and so what what a what a large task and difficult task we have this morning and i pray for myself and for all of us that we would do that that as we talk about end times and look at these particular things, that you would drive our minds and our hearts and our understanding deeper than just words on a page and to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to be moved by Jesus. I pray for myself, God, that um, you would keep me from confusion, or being confusing, I pray that as I desire to and strive to unpack your word, 
that you would do a work in my own heart and that the grace and the affection that you've shown me in my life um, would be clear and evident and would be something that you would use to bless us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So, um, if you haven't been here, I'll give you a little explanation of what's going on. um, Because you're probably going to be, maybe, caught off guard on some of the crazy talk here. You probably did not wake up this morning thinking to yourself, I really hope that we talk about the abomination of desolation and what that means and all of its ramifications. I've been on the edge of my seat for seven days just waiting on the abomination of desolation talk. So I, I know none of us woke up that morning, so thinking that this morning. So let me give you some understanding of what's going on. Um, as I said, we've been going through the book of Matthew now for about a year and a half. And last week we started a section here in chapter 24 and 25. Um, and this 24 and 25, chapters 24 and 25, are going to be talking about for us um, the end times. And so... What we've done as we've been going through this entire book of Matthew, um, we've been trying to section it off in in series of chapters, you know, chapters 5 through 7 or 13 and 14, and now 24 and 25, and as we've been going through, and trying to take a subsection or a couple chapters at a time um, and and really understand what what it's going on here. And Matthew has written for us in such a way as he's kind of written the entire book of Matthew, which is written to people who are Jewish. He's been trying to explain to them that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, He's the one that's been told about throughout the Old Testament. And so he's also sectioned off things for us so that we can understand. And that's no different here as we're looking at uh, chapters 24 and 25. So what I want to do today, I think it'll be very helpful even if you were here last year, or last year, last week, I need to do this because this is so kind of um, big and off and kind of hard to understand. I'm going to do a little bit of a review for us all in verses 1 through 14 to get us all on the same page so that when we pick up in 15 and go through 28, we're all on the same page. And even if we were here, like, I'm going to do this review for me too because I still can't remember what I said last week so that we can all, that's kind of a joke, but uh, kind of. So I'm going to do that for us so that we can all be on the same page because verses 15 through 28 is really just kind of taking some of those things that we heard last week in verses 1 through 14 and seeing them and hearing them and going through them again. So um, a little bit of uh, what's going on in 24 through 25. Now, chapter 24 begins with a question. Um, the, the impetus or the catalyst or the beginning of chapters 24 and 25 starts with this question in verse 3. And if you look at verse 3, what happens is uh, G- Jesus and the disciples had just left the temple. We can see that in verse 39 of the previous chapter. They had just left the temple and they're walking out and they walk up however long it takes to walk up the, 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 the road and they get to the Mount of Olives. And they ask this question here in verse 3 and it says in verse 3, He sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. We need to say, what are these things? Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. So they're asking two questions. What are these things going to be? When's that going to happen? And when's your second coming? Now, these things are very easy to know. If you look up, it looks like four verses up up uh, in verse 38, Jesus is talking to the people of Jerusalem, and he tells them right there in verse 38, he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. And so he's talking to people who are Jewish, and he's saying, the temple we're in right now, because you can see they're in a temple, um, we know that they're in a temple, because it says right there in verse 
1 of 24, Jesus left the temple. So he's looking at this temple, they consider their house, and he says, this house is going to be desolate. And so, um, obviously, they're standing in it still, and it's not desolate. And so the disciples are kind of walking around, and they're like, desolate? What are you talking about? So they get up to the, the, Olivet, uh, the Mount of Olives, and they ask these two questions. First is, when are these things going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And then the second question they ask is, when's your second coming? When's this, this coming, or the, the sign of your coming, or the close of the end of the age? When are those two things going to happen? And Jesus, in chapter 24 and 25, goes into this long teaching discourse. If you look, mine, I have the red letters. Um, almost all of 24 and 25 are all red letters. And when you have long, extended red letters, that's generally a teaching discourse. And this is the sixth teaching discourse of Matthew. Um, and it's known as the Olivet Discourse, which because he's on the Mount of Olives. So, um, which is all obvious. And so, this is what's going to happen here in 24 and 25. Just a kind of a big, broad picture of these two chapters. Jesus is going to answer that question in verse 3. He's going to answer that question for him. Now, what's going on in the disciples' mind is the, the destruction of the temple or this destruction being left desolate and the second coming of Christ, in their minds, they think that those two things are a simultaneous event. One's going to happen, the other's going to happen. They seem to be, in their minds, happening at the same time. Jesus wants them to see that they're not going to happen at the same time. Living in 2013, we have the benefit of seeing that. We, we know that the, the destruction of the temple, um, Eusebius and Josephus, these are just historians that lived in the first century, they, they write in detail. They're not even Christians. They just write in, the deta- in detail. Around AD, 70 AD, the destruction of the temple happened. And so about 40 years after Jesus says that this house is going to be left desolate, it is left desolate. Someone, the, the Rome comes in and just destroys it all. And so... They think that these things are going to happen at the same time. And Jesus is trying to help them see, actually, it's not going to happen at the same time. So here in 2013, we're going to pretend this way is time. We're going to look down at 70 AD and we're going to see, there it is, the destruction of the temple. It happened in 70 AD. But here we are in 2013 and we still haven't seen the second coming yet, right? It still hasn't happened. It's still happening in the future. So we know that those two questions and those two, event, those two events are not together and not to be thought of to happen together, but separate. So what Jesus is going to do here in chapters 24 and 25 is to help the disciples understand that they're actually different events. And in the first part of 24, maybe for about 35, 40 verses, he's going to give them a timeline of understanding of how the end times are actually going to happen. So that's what he's going to do in the first part of 24. And then the next part of 24 into 25, he's going to say, based on those things and the timeline and how it's going to happen, he's going to do some teachings as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, and what a Christian life should look like being ready for the fact that the end time is coming. So that's the first section is that this is what it's going to look like. The second section in chapter 24 and 25 is... You need to be ready, and this is what it means to be ready. And then at the very end of chapter 25, if you look, that says something about the final judgment. That's the last section where he just helps everybody understand the final judgment and what those things are going to look like. So what we did last week then is we started at 24.1, and we had uh, some things that we saw whenever he started answering this question about um, when the destruction of the temple was going to happen and when the end times were going to happen. And he starts telling us, some signs. He starts telling us some things that we can look for. But um, what's, what became evident as we looked at the first 14 verses of chapter 24 is these signs that he gives us are not signs as in they're the signs, therefore like it's about to happen right now. 
Like instead, we, he gives us three particular signs, and these three particular signs are actually, actually signs that happened in every generation. They happened in the first century, and then just a little bit later, they happened again mid-first century, they happened second century, they happened mid-second century, and they've been happening over and over all the way, and they're happening right now. So these three signs he gives them are things, these are three things that you need to know are going to be happening but they're going to be happening in every generation. So we titled, entitled last week's uh, three things that we saw is the signs before the signs. The signs that are not really the signs, but they're still important. And we saw them right there in the text. And you can look with me, and I'll show you the three things. The first one was something that was really broad. It's actually going to be something that affects every human being alive. Christian or non-Christian, you're going to see these particular things that are going to be happening. And you can see it starting right there in verse 5. There's going to be people that are claiming they're going to be Jesus. You know, I'm Jesus. Look at me. I'm Jesus. That's one of the things that's going to happen. The next thing in 6, you can see that there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. You can also see in verse 7, it says nations are going to rise against nations. There's also going to be famines and earthquakes, natural kind of disaster things. And he takes all those things in verse 5 through 7. And he says, so one of the signs that's going to happen, it's not the signs, but one of the signs that's going to happen in every generation so that you know that the end times are kind of getting started is there's going to be, and the first one that we saw was general tumultuous trials and destruction in the end times of the world. And that's, that's something that we've seen this. We've heard of wars since 2,000 years ago and even prior to. We know that there's been earthquakes. We know that there's been famines. We know that there's been nation rising against nation. So every generation sees that. That's the first thing that we saw. The second thing that we saw takes it from the world and kind of brings it down into Christians specifically. And he says another sign that's specific to Christians that shows that, shows that you're in the end times, but you're not in the end times, is, it says it right there in verse 9, then they will deliver you, talking to Christians, up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And so... Another thing which has happened in the first century and all the way up until now, that signs of the end times is the second thing, is that specific persecution for the followers of Jesus starts happening. And these are signs of the end times. Um, not these signs, not, not like, you know, the crazy revelation stuff when you got horses and lampstands and candles and stuff like that, right? Um, we're like, what does that mean? I don't even know what that means, right? Well, kind of. But my point is, um, <laughs> off track, back to verse 10. Uh, Since we see, I'm sorry, verse 9, since we see great distress is happening, and then the second thing we see is that persecution comes, there's a a natural third sign, a natural outflow that happens, which is right there in verse 10 where it says, and many will fall away and betray one another. They will hate each other. Many false prophets will rise up and lead many astray. So the third sign that we see that are the signs but not these signs are when, because the second one has happened where people are getting persecuted, the third sign is people leave the church whether they knew that they weren't Christians or they thought that they were Christians, whatever, they leave the church. So those three things are happening in every generation that's going on. But Christ doesn't just kind of leave us there and say, there's my eschatological teaching. That just means end times teaching. There's my eschatological teaching there for the day, so go take that and think on it. He doesn't just do that because all of us, I mean, every single one of us, when we hear that say, okay, but Tuesday... um, I've got this difficult thing that's about to happen. Or two days ago, I had a fight with my spouse, and I don't know how to handle that. So we live in real life, and we're experiencing stuff. Or should I marry this person? Should I go to this college? What am I supposed to do now that I'm graduated? 
where do I go in life? Like we're, we're asking these real questions in life. And so we just kind of hear these big, broad things about end times. Well, if you're like me, you're just lost, right? You're like, what do I do with that? Jesus is awesome for many reasons. And one of the another, another reasons is he gives us a couple little application points there in verses 13 and 14 that help us know as Christians, how do we live in light of those things? Like those wars and rumors and wars and earthquakes, what do I do with that? He tells us right here in 13, there was two little things he says. Thir- 13 says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Therefore, he gives us an exhortation or a challenge, if you will, to endure, to continue persevering in the faith, continue trusting in what Christ has done for us on the cross. And that declaration or that pronouncement of God on us, if we put our faith in Christ and repent of our sins, that we are innocent now, we are justified, we are forgiven, we are never going to be condemned. That declaration on us is so glorious and so freeing and so liberating as a Christian that we don't have to return to sin. We don't have to fill in the blank of all the things that we don't want to do. Instead of, we can persevere in the faith. If there's an earthquake, or if there's a fight, or if I need to move, or if I need to take that job, or if I want to be married and I'm not, whatever. He's telling us whatever the thing's going on in your life. Because you're always going to be living in these end times. Persevere, endure, press in deep to Christ, and trust and believe what he has declared of you if you're a Christian, that you are saved, and that relationship with God is secure because Christ has said it so. Therefore, you can wake up the next morning very free and liberated in Christ and just joyous as a worshiper. That's the first thing he tells us. The second thing he tells us right there in verse 14 was this gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed to all the um, kingdoms of the world or throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations or ethne and then the end will come. So basically he says, trust the gospel, endure and persevere. And the second thing he says is, you have a task. You have a task. Go proclaim the gospel. Tell people about Jesus and make disciples. All those things are always going to be happening. So what do I want you to do? I want you to live your life pressing into Christ and telling people about Jesus. That's how you live. That's what you need to do tomorrow when you wake up. It's a very practical. Christ ends it very, very practical for us as he goes into um, as he goes into verse 15. Now, verse 15 is going to shift gears here for us and it's going to, it's going to be much different. So um, let's look at verse 15 and what I want to do is this. Um, I, want to, I want to kind of set the table for you and what I want to do so that whenever we're going through end times teaching in verses 15 through 28, we don't find ourselves bogged down with end times teaching because I think there's something greater that's going on that Christ wants us to know about, okay? Um, think of it this way. You're looking up at the sky and maybe it's the sunset, whatever, and it's just clouds everywhere and when there's clouds everywhere it's difficult to see and it's hard to to see through through things but sometimes when there's all these clouds beams of the sun come through the clouds and it's kind of breathtaking you're like wow it's beautiful that's what it's going to be like today (laughs) there's going to be a lot of cloudy talk about end times which some of us will understand and some of us won't and they're going to be moving past and as they're moving past a golden beam of sunlight is going to come through. And that golden beam of sunlight that's going to come through is a beautiful, breathtaking characteristic of our Savior Jesus that we're supposed to say, wow, that's beautiful. So my goal today then 
is, as we're talking about end times, is to help you see five beautiful, breathtaking characteristics of Jesus. And that you would just be finding yourself lingering and thinking on, wow, what a Savior. Wow, what a magnificent Savior. What a beautiful, beautiful thing about Him. So, um, there will be some... There will be some in-talks time. I'm not saying that there won't be some clouds, okay? The clouds are going to be there. Abomination of desolation, really? I mean, seriously? That's there. Like, that, we've got we to gotta talk about it. But my, as we're going through that, I'm going to point out five just beautiful, breathtaking things about Jesus that I, I think are just there for us to, at, the, at the end as we finish. And we're, we're, it's time for a response to say, okay, I've got to do stuff, but I need to just take in the beauty of Christ here. It's good for us to just know and see how beautiful he is. So verse 15, it says, so, this word so is the Greek word un, and it sometimes can be translated therefore, and we all know when you see the word therefore, you need to say, what's it there for? So based on the things that we've seen, he's transitioning and saying, so the things that you've heard, therefore the things that you've heard, when you see the abomination of desolation. What a, um, what a confusing word. Smat wanted me to wrap this, and I'm not going to. But he says the abomination of desolation. Um, Lecrae would do it, though. But this is what, what basically what these big words mean are. Abomination is just something terrible, gross, terrible, gross. Like, this is an abominable thing. This is a horrible, horrific thing of desolation. This is something that has happened that makes it broke down and unclean and, and terrible. So this breaking and tearing down of something is an abominable, terrible thing. And he's saying, so when you see this happen, whenever you see the abomination of desolation, something that happens that's really, really awful, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Okay, so now he's saying back when Daniel wrote Daniel, he speaks of something that's going to be happening in the future, and Daniel calls it an abomination of desolation. He says, well, when you see it, and Daniel spoke about it, um, the, the, spoken about the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, a little parenthetical, let the reader understand, saying, the way that you're going to properly understand the abomination of desolation, or this really terrible thing that happens, is by looking back to Daniel and understanding that Daniel is helping us understand what this is. It can only, this event can only be interpreted correctly by knowing that Daniel is explaining it for us. That's basically, basically what he's saying. Let the reader understand. And then in verse 16, he says, let, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In other words, this event is going to be so terrible in this particular holy place, this particular city, you don't want to be there. You want to get up and hightail it to the mountains. It's time to, it's time to get out of there. And he, said, he goes on to describe to us the need to get out of there in verse 17. But before we do that, um, let's... Let's unpack a little bit from Daniel, verse 15, and get a little understanding so we can keep moving forward. All right. In Daniel, when he refers to, he has four different places when he refers to this. Daniel, uh, what is it, 813, 927, 1131, 1211. You don't need that. It's just extra for you. But we know there's four times that he refers to it. So when Daniel's writing about this, he refers to something that's going to happen in the future. And he's saying there's an abomination of desolation that's going to happen. And it happens around 170 B.C. So what Jesus is doing in around 30 A.D., he's saying, Daniel referred to an abomination of desolation. 
and he prophesies about it, and then it happens. And then Jesus is saying, in order to understand this next abomination of desolation, I know this is getting crazy. I'm, these are the clouds I was telling you about. In, in order to understand the abomination of desolation that's going to happen in AD 70 when the Jerusalem temple is destroyed, you need to understand Daniel talks about this, and this is so horrific, it's like that when this happens. I know that's brutal, but that's, that's what he's saying, okay? So um, this is what happened, what Daniel talks about. In uh, 170 BC, there was a guy named, and I can't even pronounce his name, Antiochus Epiphanes, something like that. He erected an altar to Zeus in where the, the altar that they were burning, um, all, they were put, placing burnt offerings. He came and he erected an altar to Zeus. He was obviously a pagan. And he sacrificed a pig on this altar. Now, if you know anything about uh, Judaism, that, that's not cool. That's not cool at all. Um, they think pigs are filthy animals. And sacrificing a pig on their altar, they don't, they don't find that, you know, something that they would be overjoyed about at all. Very, very, very upset about it. Um, and then he also made the practice of Judaism a capital offense. So you could be arrested by it. And so Jesus says, the fact that this man um, offered a pig on this, on this offering, on the altar, is an abomination. And so everybody that's, that's Jewish, that hearing this from Matthew, looks back and they're like, we remember that. Abomination. That's awful. We, we can't even conceive that's so terrible. And Jesus is saying, in the same way that's terrible, this next thing that's going to happen is really terrible. Now, the next thing he's talking about is the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. So Jesus is talking around the eight, year AD 30, and he's saying in about 40 years from now, the abomination of desolation where they destroy the temple is going to be even worse. It's going to be horrifically terrible. And he's saying, when that happens, don't stay there. Get out of there. And you can see in verse 17, let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. So they had kind of lower houses that were flat. And so he's saying, if you're on the housetop and that happens, you need to just get up. And you ever watch one of those cop shows in New York where they're just kind of running from like rooftop to rooftop, like 24 stories high, and they're just jumping? Just think of it that way, but much lower. And so they're saying, whenever that starts happening, you just get up and you just... Run from housetop to housetop, you know, like a cop in New York, and you get up out of there. The cop in New York's my extra. Um, and then verse 18, just another way to say it, like ha- get, get out of there on the housetops. He says that another way in 18. He says, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. You're out in the cloak and it's all happening. Leave the coat. Forget the coat. Even if it's a members-only jacket, get out of there. It's time, to, it's time to fly. Like, get out of there. That was a reference if you grew up in the 80s. Those things are awesome. Um, so my, he, the point is that he's trying to help them see this is going to be really terrible. You don't have time to mess around. Get out of there fast. Even in verse 19, he's going to um, show his compassionate nature. Let's just think about this for a second. Jesus is stopping to tell people that he loves, in about 40 years this is going to happen. And I don't want it to happen to you. I want when it happens that you listen to what I'm saying. Get out of there. It's going to be terrible. You can already start seeing a, a, a gold beam, a sun kind of beaming through there. Oh man, what a, what a sympathetic, kind man. He, he didn't have to do that. But he loves them. He loves them. And he wants them to be ready so that they're not harmed. Look what he says in in 19. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. It will be terrible. It's going to be awful. So if you're a pregnant woman or you're nursing, get out of there fast to save you and the baby. And he says, pray that your flight might not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. 
Because if it happens on the winter on the Sabbath, if it's winter, it's cold. If it's the Sabbath, you're thinking you have to abide by these laws. And you're like, i got to get out of here, but I'm only allowed to walk a certain distance on the Sabbath. Lord, don't let it happen on the Sabbath. I want to get out of here fast. I want to be able to, to escape quickly. And so what we've seen here in all of this is the, the first kind of characteristic of Jesus beaming through the clouds that I want us all to see, which is this. Um, we have a sympathetic it's going to come up here any second now. Number one, his sympathetic heart. Um, and even, it says 19 through 20, but you could even really get up, you could go up to 17. You can make it 17 through 20 if you want. Um, but we, he, we see here Jesus saying that this destruction of the temple that's happening in AD 70 is going to be terrible. Uh, now, I need to, well, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. In 21, I'll explain it. But the whole point here is that we can see a tremendously sympathetic Savior to them, that he would tell them, you're going to be going through something terrible. I want you to get out of there. Now, can we just make an application point here? I think this is needed. Um, Some of you might really need to hear this. You might be going through, you're not going through a destruction of your temple. And you might not be praying that it's not going to happen on the Sabbath or whatever. You're not running from rooftop to rooftop to escape or leaving your members-only jacket to get out of there. But you're, you're in, a, you're in a, a situation that's tough. You're in a trial right now that's, you don't know how you're going to make it through it. And you're, you're wondering, like we all would sometimes, we have these moments where we're trusting, and then we have these moments where we're like, why are you doing this? Wait, I'm supposed to be trusting, right? We all have those. And I want you to just not forget, you have a sympathetic Savior. He wants to be there during your trial. He is there. He's not absent during this. As a matter of fact, he's quite close. Trust that. Believe the deep love and affections he has for you during your trials. It's astounding. That's, that's a, don't let that Beam through the clouds and say, yeah, but instead say, oh, wow. He really does love me. He is sympathetic towards me in this thing that I'm going through. So, continuing on in verse 21, I'm going to bring some more clouds in for us as we talk about uh, the great tribulation. But let's talk of one little thing about the... uh, I want to say one more thing about the abomination of desolation. Um, there's really kind of three desolations being spoken of here. If you're looking at Daniel and you're trying to get it all, uh, your mind wrapped around it, we're talking about that one in 170 B.C. whenever the pig was um, sacrificed. We're also talking about the destruction of the temple, which I think most acutely he's speaking out of with his disciples. But also in a broad sense, um, he is talking to all of his disciples, even us today, about the abomination of desolation that's going to happen in the future, which is whenever the Antichrist sits on the throne of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem and says that he's Jesus. That's, that's going to happen in the, in, in the end times. That is, by far, the worst offense that ever could happen. That Satan sits on the throne of God and says that he's God. That's, that's the other third huge desolation that's coming. Um, And he's telling us, who are alive today, be on the lookout and do not be fooled. 
many people are going to rise up and say they're Christ's. And do not, we, we saw that in verse 5, and he's going to say it for us again. You can see it right there in verse 23. Um, verse 23, it says, Then if anyone says, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For many false Christ and prophets will arise. So we, we know that that's going to happen. And that's the third one that he's talking about. So back over to verse 21. Um, let's, let's take a look at verse 21 so we can see this second thing um, in verse 21, it says, for, always looking for those transition words. He's, he's moving to something, helping us see. Then there will be great tribulation. For then there will be great tribulation. Now, this term, great tribulation, is something that, especially when you're studying end times, uh, commentators zero in on and say, that word has meaning. Tribulation. We have entitled that to mean something when we're studying end times. And just as a quick little review for you, uh, if you've studied any end time stuff, we know that we, we're in t- 2013, and there's some views that would hold that in the future, um, whenever that time would happen, that this kind of characterized by two little time periods. The first time period is known as the Great Tribulation, which is seven years long. Um, and some people believe Jesus will come at the beginning. Some people believe that Jesus comes in the middle. Some people that believe Jesus comes at the end. But there's a seven-year period where there's an, the people that believe in the beginning are the left-behind people. You know, they love Kirk Cameron. We're all going to, we're out of here, and everybody that stays is going to be here. Everybody's going to vanish, and their clothes are going to fall on the ground. You'll be like, what just happened? Um, and if you're there, uh, you're in trouble. So um, I don't hold to that. I hold to the end. I'm way off track. But anyway, there's this little time period called seven-year tribulation, okay? That's, that's significant. And there's people that point at this, and they say, that's what he's talking about. But there's also, after the seven-year tribulation, a thousand-year period called the millennium. Pretty creative name. The thousand-year period that's called the millennium. Um, so you've got the seven years and you've got the, the thousand years. So when people, looking at the end times, when they're studying like chapters 24 and 25, which are about end times, and they see the phrase, great tribulation, they say, that's the great tribulation. That's the seven years. That's what Jesus is talking about. And the reason why they think this is from Revelation uh, chapter 7. Um, you don't have to flip. I'm going to flip. I was, I was a, a gold star Bible drill, so I'm going to get there before you. Um, and just a joke. So in Revelation 17, I'm sorry, Revelation 3, 7, 13, and 14, this is what it says. Um, <laughs> then one of the elders, you know, Revelation is like the end times, right? It says this. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, sir, um, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones here. It is coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So Revelation talks about that, that actual seven-year period right there. That's going to happen at the end of time. And so when people read this, this 21, they say, For there will be great tribulation. Commentators, theologians say there's two ways to understand this great tribulation. The first one is that's the Revelation 7.14 great tribulation, the very end. The other people say, and I, I fall into the second, is that I think that what he's talking about is the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Um, I think that when he says, for then there will be great tribulation, he's been talking about A.D. 70. Um, he's been talking about uh, a time period that seems to be speaking of that. If you just look like, right one verse above when he says, pray that your flight may not, hap- may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, an implicit understanding for him mentioning the Sabbath is that people would be practicing the Sabbath laws, Right? Why would you pray that it's not on the Sabbath if it's walking on the Sabbath isn't a big deal? And so to me, that's, that's a first century thing. That's not a in the future thing. No one's practicing the Sabbath in the end times. So it makes me think, 
first century. He's talking about the first century. And he says, for then there will be great tribulation. He's not talking about the great tribulation. He's just talking about in about 40 years, there's going to be great tribulation. There's going to be a lot of distress. It's going to be pretty terrible. And so, anyway, verse 31, such as not from the beginning. Here's, here's the second reason why I say it's the 80-70 and not the great tribulation. Because such as not um, been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. That never will be is the second reason why. I know this is kind of heady. These are the clouds, I'm sorry. So if you're at the very great tribulation and you're saying, and never will be, there's no time period after that. So why would you say it never will be? And it only makes sense that it's 80, 70, because it never will be. So I, that's the second reason. But anyway, um, back to the actual thing here. When he says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning. Um, in about 40 years when this Jerusalem temple happens, this destruction, this known as the Jewish war when Rome comes in and destroys them, it is a terrible time for the Jewish people. Um, in the Nazis, they killed around 6 million J- Jewish people in their death camps. Um, Stalin probably killed about 20 million. Um, and commentators are saying that this particular destruction of the temple is even worse than those things. This is what... D.A. Carson says, Never has there been such a high percentage of a great city's population um, that would be so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. We don't know that. Like, we didn't live then, so we don't know. But it was terrible. More terrible than maybe some of the things that we know about in our own time period. That's why he's saying, For then there will be great tribulation. So the point of the passage as we're reading this in verse 21 is not for us to go get out a huge piece of construction paper and start marking up dates and making charts and trying to figure out when the end time is going to happen. Because we don't know. I mean, verse 36 in this very chapter says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Only the Father knows. So the point is not to make your charts. Not at all. Instead, the point is, to think about the fact that Jesus, the compassionate Savior, is wanting to tell us about these things. He's wanting to ready his first century disciples and also, in a sense, ready his 21st century and on disciples for the second coming. The point of this text is Jesus, not in time charts. The point of the thing is Jesus and his love and his mercy and his kindness and his sympathetic heart to his people. He wants you to see he is actually stopping and telling them about things that are going to happen because he loves them and cares for them and wants them to be living in such a way that they're ready for these events. His kindness towards us. So the second thing I want you to see, um, continuing in verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. All right, so... When I was reading this before, I kept thinking that he's going to actually take a 24-hour day and cut it short. Instead of being 24 hours, he's actually going to make it like 18. and Just make a bunch of 18-hour days in a row. It doesn't make sense. I don't know why I thought that, but that's what I thought. That's not what he's saying. Um, Instead, he's saying, you've got this period, this, this era, this age, and it's a certain amount of days. And what he's going to do out of love for the elect, out of love for his people, he's going to shorten it 
so that it's only a short time period that they have to go through suffering and not this long period. And he's saying he's doing that because he loves them for the sake of his elect, it says, but he means for the sake of Christians, people, people that are, that are Christ followers. He's going to make it so that's a shorter amount of time that they actually have to experience suffering. Now, that's a sunbeam going through, a, through, through clouds. He just said, I'm going to literally be the agent, the cause of bringing suffering to a minimum for you because I love you. Here we see the second one is the utter or the sheer, the absolute, complete, total kindness of Jesus. He does not have to do that. He, he does not have to do that because he's so kind to his people. He does. He has the power to, which is coming later. But his kindness is being shown to us that for the sake of them, he's going to literally cut short the days of their suffering. In verse 23, it says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so to lead people astray. See, I have told you beforehand. False prophets are going to come and say that they're... Now, I mean, that sounds ludicrous to us, right? In, in our day, especially, you know, after we've kind of hit the, the skepticism that happened 300 years ago in, in modern philosophy, if anybody says that they're Jesus, we're all just like, yeah, right. But that guy in Bull Street, um, that's the crazy house in Columbia. Like, you know, we all just think, you're crazy. You're not Jesus. <laughs> we know better than that. But in the first century, they didn't know quite as well as we do. And so he's given these warnings to them saying, don't believe it. Like, don't believe whenever people say they're Jesus and they're the Christ. It's not going to happen. For false Christ and false prophets are going to happen all over the place. And then he looks at him in verse 25 and he says, See, I've told you beforehand. It's going to come. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. I'm telling you this even beforehand. Why would he do that? Why would he want to keep them from following false Christs, false saviors? Because he loves them. He knows that we were wired to worship him. All of our deepest love and emotion has been wired in our bodies in such a way that he is the supreme affection of our lives. And that's where we find our highest joy and happiness. And it's not in false saviors. It's not in false Christ. It's not in functional saviors like relationships or whatever. It's in him alone. And so the third thing that's being shown to us here is that he has for us a wonderful remarkable love. Something that's being displayed to us is he's saying, I'm telling you beforehand, because I love you so deeply. Astounding. Just amazing that he has this kind of love for us. Just pause for a second. Think about this. Are you just over your head and mind and like, I cannot believe that God himself if, I'm a, if you're a child of his, loves you that much. God. That's not something to just kind of breeze through and be like, number three, he loves me. What's number four? Like, God, the creator of all things, loves you with a greater love than anybody else could ever love you. More than your spouse, more than yourself, more than anybody could ever love you. I, I like that my wife and children love me. It's a good thing. It makes me happy. But I also like that no one can love me like God can love me. Because no one knows me like he does. He knows everything. All the warts 
and he still loves me. He knows everything about you. Everything you don't want him to know. He still loves you. Telling you beforehand. Demonstrating this amazing love. In verse 26, he says, So, if they say to you, this, this is my favorite, by the way. Um, the reason why is because in my mind, I picture myself as, from, at least for my wife, a big, strong man. Like, I like the fact of when we talk about, when, when we see these texts about Jesus being strong and powerful, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. I like those. And so, because I picture myself for my wife, and so she actually texted me during the first service while I was preaching. She said, you are a big, strong man. I was like, yes. And so, um, it was awesome. It, my, my phone's bu- buzzing during the sermon, and I go and I check, and it's just my wife telling me, you are strong. So, it was, anyway, so back, to, this is my favorite one of the, of the five like, yeah, that's awesome. So it was. So 26, it says, so if they say to you, this is so awesome. I love this. So if they say to you, I, anyway, look, he is in the wilderness. Do not go out and say, look, is, is, I'm sorry, let's read that again. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness. Do not go out. If they say to you, look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For, verse 27, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, in the end times, you wouldn't have to be going and like, I wonder if Jesus is here. Let's look in the closet. Are you in? No, he's not here. I should go out in the woods. Jesus, are you out in the woods? Looking in the trees. Like, his coming will be, there will not be any kind of wondering. Like, is this Jesus? His coming will be very, very public and unmistakable. We're not like wondering, well, I wonder if he came. I don't know. And he he paints a picture for us and he says, for as lightning comes from the east and the west, so will be the coming. Have you been outside during a lightning storm, particularly at night when lightning flashes? It's like daytime, like for a second and then it's dark again. But like, you're like, whoa, no one's asking themselves saying, I wonder where the lightning is. I'll go look in the woods or the closet in the inner rooms. Anybody see lightning? You just walk outside and you're like, unmistakable, lightning everywhere, big public, public display of this. I'm not wondering if it's lightning. The same thing. So the fourth thing that's being demonstrated for us is this, is the um, power, the remarkable power of Christ. When he comes, it is going to be, he has the power and strength and everything and resources within him that his second coming is public and unquestionable and unmistakable in the whole earth. Everyone's going to know. Not in just one centralized location, but everyone in the whole earth is going to know, okay, that's Jesus. That's awesome. That is unbelievable power. Sheer, amazing, crazy power. And that Jesus, with that power, is your Savior. Like, that's the one. He has, when I think of Jesus' power, I always think, He has the power to save. Like, he is mighty to save. So that crazy neighbor next to you that, you know, stays out and plays music till midnight and has his dog barking until 1 a.m., you're like, this guy will never meet Jesus. He drives me crazy. Jesus is powerful to save even that guy. Your crazy uncle or whoever, or your roommate that just seems so hard-hearted, she or he gives their life over to reckless debauchery and it breaks your heart to see him you're like jesus would he's never going to do a work he is mighty to save amazing power this man has here's a question for you i heard it this past week i've heard it before and it always just like 
dagger to the heart convicting. Highlighting for us, this question should highlight for us maybe the lack of really believing this power of Jesus. If Jesus came to you today and said, I'm going to answer every prayer you prayed for last week, over the last seven days, here's the question. How many people would be Christians then? We, we don't pray for people to meet Jesus because in the back of our head, we forget just how powerful he is. He's mighty to save. Among hundreds of other things he's mighty to do. What a, what a great, great savior. And then to end, verse 28. If you're like me, you're just like, you know, I, I use this kind of story every once in a while. I, I picture the writers sometimes whenever they're, they're writing, they, they kind of fall asleep. And then at 2 a.m. they like wake up and they write something and they fall back asleep. And the next morning they're reading it like, what did I just write? <laughs> but it's still divinely inspired. That's what verse 28 feels like to me. Like Matthew woke, woke up at 2 a.m. by candlelight. And he's like, yeah, yeah, corpses, vultures. He goes back to sleep. And, so, and it says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Does that? Was it supposed to be 27 to 29? Why is 28 there? You read it and you're like, what? Um, so thank goodness we have commentators that help explain things to me that I can in turn be the middleman and explain things to you. Um, this is what's going on. Uh, 28 is a parable. It's just a parable. Parable means um, it's not literal. We're supposed to take parables not as literal, but it's a story of he- helping us understand. So when we see, therefore where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Where a dead body is, they fly around and they come down and they eat it, right? Nasty. Um, What we're supposed to understand, in other words, this can be said, the vultures always show up at the corpse at just the right time. They always show up at just the right time. You you don't ever see vultures circling nothing. (laughs) Like there's just empty space. They're, They're circling. Whenever there's a corpse provided, they come at just the right time to start doing it. That's basically the kind of vulgar analogy that's being shown here in a parable sense where in the same way what jesus is saying is um in the same way the second coming of jesus is going to be at just the right time that's what he's saying it's going to be just the right time when he comes so the fifth thing that's being shown to us in this interesting little verse is this that we have a long suffering, patient Savior. We can ask ourselves, he's not coming. It's been 2,000 years, and he still hasn't come yet. And we don't know, but we know that he's endured patiently for 2,000 years and still hasn't come. His long-suffering patience is keeping him from coming, and he's going to come at the right time, but why hasn't he come, and what is the right time? What's the delay? What's, what's he being patient for? The same question was being asked even in the first century. Um, after he had died, even in the first century, just a few years later, people were coming to Peter and they were saying, where's Jesus? Why hadn't he come back yet? He's not real. He's not coming back. He doesn't love you. He's not, why hasn't he come back yet? And they're, asking, they're saying that to the people and the people are like, we don't know. Peter, what's going on? So Peter writes to them in 2 Peter 3, 9. And helps the people understand and even their um, complainers against them understand why he's delaying. Why he's deciding to be long-suffering and patient. 
This is what he says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. That's talking about the second coming. As some count slowness. They just think he's so slow. He's not slow. He's taking the right time needed. And it says, here's why. This, this is remarkable. As some count slowness. But is patient. He's long-suffering and patient in his, his second coming delay. Why? Towards you, not wishing. This is why he's waiting. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, that's pretty astounding. In other words, if Jesus were to come right now, then all these people, if he were delayed, wouldn't be saved. But instead of coming right now, he's delaying in coming. And therefore, in this intermediate time period, there is an opportunity for people to meet Jesus. So he's being patient because he's not wishing that they would perish, but wishing that they would come to repentance. So he's delaying his second coming so that believers or unbelievers would then put their faith in Jesus. That's why he's being patient, so that more people will come, become Christians. And then, in, in God's mind, the right time is whenever he'll come. Because he wants people to meet Christ. Which means, if we read Romans 10 correctly, the way that they meet Christ is by us. So the delay is not just so that they'll meet Jesus. The delay is so that we will get off our couch and go. He's delaying so that we will make disciples. Very, very long-suffering and patient. And he's long-suffering and he's patient with you. In your delay to make disciples or your delay to put sin to death or your delay to repent or your delay in leading your family well or your delay in preaching the gospel effectively to your children. He's patient. He's always patient. He's not angry with you. All the anger of God was poured out on Christ on the cross. And we receive mercy, grace, patience, love, kindness. I mean, just astounding. What a Savior. What a Savior. And so he's telling us in the midst of this that we are like him to be loving and patient and kind and faithful until he comes again. So let me ask this question to you. For you that are not believers, let me ask this question. If verse 27, where he says, the lightning comes as from the east to the west, if that was to happen today, are you ready? Once the second coming happens, there's no like second chance to get saved. There's no second chance to repent of sin and become a believer and receive all the forgiveness in Christ. If verse 27 were to happen and you're not a believer... He's saying, come to Christ. Repent and confess your sins and meet Jesus today. Today's the day for salvation. Do not delay anymore. He's more sweet and more beautiful and more forgiving and more delightful than you could ever conceive and ever could imagine. You'll never find yourself more joyous and more happy than being in Christ. That's the invitation that's being extended to you. Life, not death. So if you don't know Jesus, and this is imminent, we know that this is imminent, don't delay. But also, for Christians, if verse 27 were to happen today, 
Let me ask it this way, because I don't want to sound legalistic. So this is the way I've had to write it really carefully. What do you want to be the condition of your heart and your love for Jesus to be like when he returns? I'm not minimizing ebb and flow. I'm not minimizing ups and downs spiritually. But certainly, if Jesus is coming, I don't want to be off doing whatever I want, thinking about selfish things that have nothing to do with the glory of Christ. I'm not saying that these things save you. Faith in Jesus by grace alone is what saves you. And if Christ has said you're saved, you're saved. If you have present trust in his work on the cross for you, you're a believer. But there's a real question here. I mean, he is going to say, be ready, be ready, be ready. And there's a real question here. What do you want your life to look like, the condition of your heart and your love affections for Jesus to be like when he comes? If, I, if we just somehow knew he's coming in 14 days, I don't think any of us would say, oh, 14 days? Well, then for 13 days, I'm going to go do whatever I want. On that last day, I'm going I'm to press into Jesus that last day and say, look at me, I'm all about you, Jesus. We wouldn't do that. That'd be insane. And plus, he's not fooled, right? We would say, oh, man, I need to take stock of life. I need to think what life is all about. I want to be ready. And we would launch headlong into deep, affectionate walking with Jesus. Wouldn't we? Well, that's exactly what we're supposed to be living like every day. He's trying to say you don't know. It could be 7 or 14 days from now. So what do you want? The pattern and the feelings and the outflows and the affections of your heart to look like. Is your life right now pleasing with the way you're living to Jesus? I'm not saying that it's condemning, just pleasing. Because we have these great things about him, it certainly can be. So let me appeal to you separately then, and then I'll conclude. As men and women. Women. I want to appeal to you based on these things we've seen about Jesus. Um, perhaps you are going through a trial. Perhaps you do have a difficult marriage and long-suffering is, is difficult. Let these truths about Jesus be something that takes you through it. He loves you more than you could ever conceive or imagine. He's going to suffer through your trial with you. He wants to be right beside you through things. And there are people in our church that can give testimony to this. Perhaps it's not your marriage, but it's your children that are far from him. He wants you to know with the same patience that he has for you is the patience that you need to exercise towards them. Men. I want to speak to you. When we see these things about Christ, they should capture your heart. To see our Savior as strong is a good thing. It should give us the desire to want to be strong. Strong men of Christ that glorify Jesus. Even if you only weigh a buck fifty and can't lift any weight, He wants you to be a strong man of Christ that teaches his children the gospel, leads his wife well, is a servant leader in the home, in his office, doesn't laugh at the dumb jokes that are inappropriate, but instead has 
a deep pressing into the Spirit every day that wants to be on fire and leading men to Jesus, making disciples in the, in the workplace. Someone who does things in the community that shows that we care about the city like God cares about this city. He's also got a tender, compassionate, loving side that we need to be like. So as we see these things about Jesus, certainly these characteristics are things that we can have. So the point of this text is not charts and graphs. It's Jesus. And so as we go into a time of response now, we're going to have a few songs. Not just like one and we're done. We've got a few. We've got some time to breathe. And so just spend some time thinking about these. Maybe you need to confess and repent. This is what I want you to do, okay? Two little things. Two little things. The first one is, these five things that we've seen about Jesus, I don't want you to just say, yeah, and move on to what's the application. Instead, I want you to linger here. I want you to look up into the sky and see and notice and let your breath be taken away about the love and the kindness of Christ, the power that he has. I think the point is to behold more than it is to behave. So stop and behold. See the beauty of the Savior. And then think about what that means in your life next week. And in this time of worship, let's do that. Let's think and pray and confess and ask God to let us see who Christ is more deeply and intimately because that will be the thing that will help us worship in this moment and worship this week. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray that in this somewhat difficult text that you have clearly shown yourself to be evident and in it and you're shining through displaying just who you are to us our savior who is willing to go to a cross and die for us even while we were still enemies you died for us what love that is i pray that as we think and meditate on these things and as we sing you would captivate and capture our hearts anew right now and that we would stand and we would worship you and give you all the glory that you are due. You are so worthy of our worship. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.